Last week we started Second Timothy, and we're going to continue through Second Timothy this morning. We'll be picking up in verse 13 of chapter 1. Last week we had Paul tell Timothy um, some core beliefs that we have as Christians, um, and we know that reminders are always good for us. We need to be reminded of things, uh, some people more than others. You know, I have to be reminded frequently of many things, and summer keeps me on my toes. Uh, But Paul reminds Timothy that uh, now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. And now he says, for this reason, I also suffer these things. He's going to talk more about this suffering Uh, in this morning's passage. He says, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. That brings us to verse 13, where we'll start this morning. He says, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. This you know, that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. So back up to 13, he says, hold fast the pattern of sound words. Those patterns of sound words, the the word for pattern is like a template. So it's this idea of seeing what has already been done and continuing to do that same thing. Hold fast the pattern of sound words. We've seen Paul through first and now in second Timothy talk about doctrine. He's hammering home to Timothy the importance of sound doctrine, sound words in Timothy's preaching. And not only in Timothy's preaching, but in everyone else's preaching that Timothy is looking over. Because we know that Timothy was in charge of other people and uh, the message that they were putting forth into the churches of that area. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Now we do know also that Paul is near the end of his life at this point when he's writing to Timothy. Um, At the end of his letter, he even writes, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. So this is, this is very comfortable to him. He's, he understands that he's about to move on from this life. And certainly by the end of his life, Paul would have had a plethora of great advice to give Timothy. Why does he choose to talk so much about sound doctrine in these two letters that he writes to Timothy? He really does take up quite a bit of space talking about doctrine. The importance of that doctrine being true, being healthy for the congregation. He dedicates that much time and space because it's important. And, you know, out of all of the things that he could have passed on to Timothy, 
he chooses to really harp on this sound doctrine. We saw Paul also harp on the importance of sound doctrine in his first letter to Timothy. You can see it in 1 Timothy 1, 3 and 4, 4, 6, and 4, 13, 4, 16, 6, 3, and 6, 20. All references to sound doctrine or healthy doctrine. He obviously wanted to make sure that Timothy um, understood the importance of this. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. What has been committed to us by the Holy Spirit? Yes, it's true that to Timothy, uh, the message of the gospel was committed, and he was in charge of the church of Ephesus and possibly the churches in the surrounding area as well. But to everyone, Timothy included, was entrusted a sense of right and wrong or a sense of this teaching is sound, this teaching is not sound. This is what Paul is telling Timothy to keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. You see, it's the Holy Spirit that gives you that inkling that something is off. You hear a teacher teaching something that does not match up with what you've read in the Bible, that little red light goes off in your head. It's like the little one siren on those old-timey fire trucks. That's kind of what pops up in your mind. You think, man, there's something just not quite right about that. And that is that inkling that Timothy needs to keep sharp. Because if he's leading other people, you know that the enemy is going to attack him. Because if the enemy can throw him off, then he will, by extension, throw everyone off that he's teaching. So it's very important that Timothy and every other leader in the church keep this inkling by the Holy Spirit who dwells in all of us as Christians. This you know, that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. Now, he's taking a little bit of a shift here. Apparently, Timothy already knew this fact, but he is again telling Timothy and it's to set up a contrast here. Okay, so you see the the bad guys, in quotes, Phagellus and Hermogenes, and then he contrasts that with the good guy, which is Onesiphorus. Okay, so he says, This you know, that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. 16. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. So I do think that Paul is doing a couple of things here in in writing this to Timothy. First, he's simply telling Timothy of his current state, who were once aiding him and who had turned away from him. And he'll go on to give more detail in the end of this book about who all has left him, who's still with him, and everything like that. But second... And I think this is probably more so what he was going after, since he does say, this you know. He knows that Timothy already knows these things. He's just setting up a contrast between the poor example that was set by Phagellus and Hermogenes and the good example set by Onesiphorus. He's planting this seed in Timothy's mind that says, I want to be seen 
like Onesiphorus, having served well, having served Paul. We know that Paul is wanting Timothy to come minister to him in his Roman prison because he writes that very plainly. But um, also other letters ask Timothy directly to come minister to me. I'm in need. And then at the end of this letter, we'll see many of his other helpers that were in Rome have departed from him. And we'll actually mention that again a little bit later. He sets up the contrast. He wants Timothy to think, oh, I want to be seen like Onesiphorus being, you know, one of the good guys. Um, So I want to come help Paul. Now, Paul is, again, not sure if Timothy will make it before his death, but he does ask that of him. He says, for he often refreshed me, talking of Onesiphorus, and was not ashamed of my chain, as apparently the other two, Phagellus and Hermogenes, were ashamed of his chain. Um, That is kind of the antithesis that's set up there. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. Remember, Paul's first Roman imprisonment was more relaxed than the second one was. And the first one, he was chained to a guard and he was allowed some freedom of movement, uh, still with restrictions. This time he is literally placed in a dungeon. Uh, There is very little to no freedom allowed. And um, he would have actually had to have someone kind of wait on him in prison, or he just would have been suffering unbearably, probably have died in the prison. So he would have friends come in, bring him water. It says that Onus Forest refreshed him and food and just things that he might need. We can see this picture of Onesiphorus coming into Rome, seeking out this dungeon where Paul was kept, uh, being led around by a Roman guard through the tunnels, through this dungeon, going cell to cell, looking for Paul, seeking him out zealously. And apparently he found him uh, because we know that he served Paul very well. Verse 18, the Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. Now he talks about, quote unquote, that day again. He mentioned it uh, at the end of our passage last week in verse 12, that uh, what I have committed to him until that day. And this is a, a common thing in this letter. He talks about that day. You know, there's an end point in mind that Paul is striving towards. And he knows that things are going to change in that day. I mean, he references it several times. Continuing in 18, and you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. Now, it seems like kind of a last minute addition to this thought. Uh, We know that Paul couldn't go back and erase what he had already written. Uh, So (laughs) this little little addition right here, and you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. It kind of comes after he wraps up that thought in the beginning of verse 18, the Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. That kind of seems like a close, right? But um, I think he also wanted to mention to Timothy 
something that Timothy already knew. He says that you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. We know Timothy was a frequent resident of Ephesus because he was leading the church there. So evidently, he knew many of the ways that Onesiphorus had taken care of Paul when they were in Ephesus. So he didn't feel the need to really expand on it very much. Uh, But he was saying basically that, Timothy, you already know better how this guy took care of me at Ephesus than I could even write to you. You you already know these things, so I'm not going to take up your time uh, writing about them. So needless to say, um, Onesiphorus had ministered to Paul there, and he had been a great help to Paul in Ephesus as well as in Rome. Now, cracking into chapter 2, he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul refers to Timothy as his son. Um, his son in the faith, and possibly an actual father figure to Timothy. With Onesiphorus still in mind, he says, you therefore. So in light of what I just told you about Onesiphorus, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The Weist translates this little uh, phrase as, be clothed with inward strength, by the grace which is in Christ Jesus. The idea is this. Keep continually being strengthened by the grace in Christ Jesus. It's a present progressive thing. It happens. You are strengthened by Christ, but then you continue being strengthened by Christ. We couldn't go on in ministry if we weren't continually being strengthened. Uh, It would just drain us. Paul says at the end of this letter, um, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. You know, that would be an immediate thing if we were not continually strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We know that uh, just from Paul's other exhortations to Timothy, the things that Paul chose to write to Timothy, that old Timmy boy was naturally a timid kind of guy. He didn't like confrontation very much. Um, He had to be instructed to keep strong in the faith, keep strong in the grace, you know, keep strong, press forward, endure, bear up under sufferings that we'll see. Um, So he probably was a fairly timid guy. And we also know that some were grinding Timothy's gears about him being so young in leadership uh, because Paul addresses him and tells him, this is how you need to deal with these things. This is how you need to address those that are older than you in the church. Paul also knows that Timothy would struggle to continue in leadership once Paul passed away. And he he writes to him about that. So he encourages him here to be strong. Now, it's strong in the grace, okay? Uh, Whitfield said that at the end of his ministry, he looked back and there was greater fruit from him preaching grace than hellfire and brimstone. And we know that he kind of uh, leaned towards the latter of those two. Uh, But he noticed that there was more productivity from preaching grace. Interesting. 
You see, there's something that happens to legalistic leaders, to those that preach legalism, and it's simply that eventually they can't even live up to the own, their own standards that they set. Okay, but there's this thing about grace. Um, it's it's encouraging. Okay, it says, "Yeah, you did blow it this time, but get back up and get back out there." It says, "No, no, I don't know why he picked you either. Uh, you're not worthy to do anything really, uh, but he chose you, so get back out there, keep going." It says, no, you're not worthy of this perfect salvation, but you're blood-bought. We're all in the same boat. That is the beauty of the grace. And there is this resiliency to the gospel of grace. You get knocked down, you get back up. One of the reasons, I believe, no doubt, that Paul told Timothy to continue in grace And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses. These things were not taught to Timothy in private. Uh, Apparently, Timothy listened to Paul's preaching among a multitude of other people. Timothy was only one of many witnesses that heard Paul teaching these things that he's calling sound doctrine. Okay, and this is what we have in God's word now, the sound doctrine as previously mentioned. He says, commit these, so these things of sound doctrine, to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now we're going to look to the Weist translation again, and it translates this as, these things commit as a trust to trustworthy men who are of such a character as to be capable of teaching others also. It's interesting that that brings up character again. So there is an insinuation of character in the original language here. Why is this emphasis placed on character instead of ability to teach or education? or any other qualification. Why is character placed above everything else? Well, it's not the first time that Paul has placed this emphasis on character for teachers. We see in 1 Timothy 3, and we went through this several weeks ago, that there is also an emphasis placed on the teacher's character, not on any other qualification. Um, In fact, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul kind of slides in there, oh, and they have to be apt to teach. They have to be able to teach. But that is the only thing that is not relating to their character in that whole list of qualifications that he lists out for teachers. I, I did think that was interesting. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men, men of good character, who will be able to teach others also. So it's this idea of, making disciples. You teach these things to others so they can teach these things to others so they can teach these things to others. It's multiplication, not the, not addition. Okay, it takes a long time to add something up. But if you start multiplying, it goes real quick. 
And how do we know that this multiplication approach works? Look around. We're here 2,000 years later uh, doing the same thing. We're multiplying disciples. At least we're trying to. That's the goal, right? Verse 3 says, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Hardship here just means sufferings. And it's an active suffering. And we'll talk about that again. The hardship is something that you have to actively bear up under. It's not a passive suffering. A good soldier, he says. This is someone who is warring, who is at war, who is in battle. And there's a difficulty in fighting the good fight. And I think we all know that by now. Um, This is promised to us in Scripture. And, you know, we love to hold on to certain promises in the Bible and just kind of let some others go, just kind of take them out of sight, out of mind. But this is one promise that we don't often look to for encouragement. We are promised that there will be difficulty if we are being good Christian soldiers. So don't let that slip by you unnoticed. We are promised that we will face difficulty, we'll face hardship and suffering. You therefore must not can if you want to, you must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now, it's it's sad for me to see unbelievers trying to deal with hardship in their life because they have no anchor. They're out in a stormy sea and their boat is being tossed around every which way. Uh, There's nothing that anchors them down. But as a Christian, we do have Christ as our anchor. Um, And when we enter a stormy sea, when something is trying to toss us around and rattle us up, we know that we have that anchor. And Christ um, serves as that anchor for us. And I can't imagine trying to get through these hardships of life uh, without that anchor. It would be discouraging. Um, and I honestly, I don't know that I can do it. Um, I see what's going on in the world and uh, how people react to certain things. And um, I'm just thankful. I'm thankful that I have what I have in Jesus Christ. Uh, and truly, it's it's a blessing to us all. Verse 4, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. In verse 4, he says, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. This is an interesting wording that he uses here. And he uses a similar wording at the end of this letter when he's talking about Demas. I'm sure that many of you have heard of Demas in this context. He says that Demas was lost as a good soldier of Jesus because he simply turned his affections to the world. 
It was nothing more than him getting distracted by what the world could offer him. And he simply allowed his affections to be drawn to, as Paul puts it, this life rather than the next life, uh, the life in Christ. This kind of took his focus off of Christ and it effectively took him out of the fight, out of this war that we're talking about. How sad is it for a Christian to just be bebopping through life and get distracted? And that rips them out of the fight. That's a sad thing. And it happens more often than I would like to admit. Uh, but it's, it is simple. Okay. Keep your affections towards heaven. It's simple. But that doesn't mean that it's not dangerous. In fact, that's as simple as it is. That's one of the, the most dangerous things that we face as Christians, just getting lukewarm, getting our affections turned away from Christ. It happens way too often, and we we must take care to guard ourselves against it. You see the average guy who wants to start a business. He starts that business, dedicates a bunch of time to it, um, gets it off the ground. It starts to grow. He dedicates more of his time to that business. Right? It continues to grow. He dedicates even more of his time towards that business. Pretty soon, it's choking out the time that he spends in the Word and even in church. Um, and it just happens like that, gradually and then all at once. Um, we see it, and we have to take care to guard against it. And when you have your affections turned away from Christ, you're you're not a good soldier anymore. You're taken out of the fight. And I can't stress that enough. Um, we are in a battle, and I mentioned going through 1 Timothy that Paul is using these words that are alluding to a military conquest, or he's using military words. And we see that through 2 Timothy as well. Here is a very overt example of this, and I think I mentioned it last week as well. Him who enlisted him as a soldier. Verse 5, And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's not a surprise to us that we have to compete according to the rule book. If you're playing tic-tac-toe, you can't throw in an A somewhere and say, oh, I put an A in there, so I win. you got to play by the rules. In the Olympics, they have drug testing. You have to compete as a clean athlete to win your gold. And we see sometimes these athletes will work their tails off for years upon years. Uh, they finally get to the Olympics. They win a gold. And then two weeks later, they're popped for a PED, performance-enhancing drug, and that gold medal is stripped away from them. It's sad, but they have to play by the rules. And it's the same thing here. Um, we can't have somebody in the church selling cocaine saying, oh, well, I'll give half of it to the church. You're not playing by the rules. Okay? So, rule book. It's a necessity. Also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. We remember from the Old Testament, it said not to muzzle the ox that treads out the grain. 
if someone's working, they should be the, the they should have the first rights to the fruit of their labor. Uh, the farmer, he provides food for the country, but he's barely eking out a living right now. Um, it is tough on farmers and ranchers. If he's providing food for the country, he should be able to feed his family as well. If anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Don't muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. Seven, consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. And you know, this can also read something like, Timothy, take hold of these things. Take them, store them away, and live by them. Uh, Paul wants Timothy to understand what he's saying, and he tells Timothy, you know, like, ask the Lord for understanding. I can't give you everything. Um, and we know that the Holy Spirit teaches us all things. Um, so, consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Have you been reading something before and just had kind of this light bulb moment that switches on in your mind? You're like, oh, that's what that means. And you had never seen it before. But all of a sudden, you're reading your Bible, you're praying, uh, and this light bulb goes off. And you see something in a different way, something that you had never seen before. That is God speaking to you. And that is how he speaks to us all. He's, Paul here is saying, Timothy, you need to have these experiences. You need to be listening for the voice of God in what you're reading, um, especially from him, but in everything. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Interesting little passage there. It says, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Now, I'm actually not aware of any manuscripts that have the word that included in them. So that was a, a bit of an insertion there to make the thought complete. But I think that the, the thought is complete without it. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. An exhortation from Paul to Timothy to remember Jesus Christ. And as simple as it is, we overlook it. We let things besides Jesus take the forefront in ministry sometimes. Um, what an apt reminder from Paul. Further, the tense in this communicates it as continually remember Jesus Christ. It's great to, to remember him once. And that's, that's good. But keep remembering him. Continually remember Jesus. Put him first in everything that you're doing. Um, and specifically here in ministry, put Jesus Christ at the forefront. 
uh, the preeminent spot. Don't let the simple fact of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection be overshadowed by fancy lights, fancy music, um, smoke shows. We don't want any of that overshadowing why we're actually here. And we are actually here, as Paul says, Jesus of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. That's why we're here. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, there is no gospel. And there is no point in us being here. But we are confident that Jesus did raise from the dead. And that is why we are here. And that is why uh, we have the hope that we have. And certainly it is encouraging that that hope is not placed in anything in this world. It's out of this world. But it truly is a hope that is not known by those in the world. It's completely counterintuitive to everything that they have been taught. Um, They say that this world is all that there is. We hope in something beyond the world. Truly, that is encouraging to me. He says, of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. My gospel is simply speaking of that gospel which Paul declares. He's not uh, really saying that it's his gospel per se, but he is taking ownership in it. Um, And it is the gospel that he has preached. Again, a reference to the sound doctrine, the healthy words. For which, so it is for the gospel, which he suffers trouble as an evildoer even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. For which obviously refers to the gospel because he was just talking about that. But this is why Paul endures the things that he endures. Um, And let me tell you, I would not want to endure the things that Paul endured. Uh, He actually gives us a list of those things in 2 Corinthians 11. Starting in verse 23, he says, I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils in the wilderness. In perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Wow. I have not begun to face the same sufferings that Paul has faced, but here he is writing to this young pastor, this young overseer, saying, remember Jesus Christ. Keep remembering him. Put him first. This is why we're here. This is why you're doing what you're doing, and I'm doing what I'm doing. For which I suffered trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. Trouble here is the same word that was used in verse 3 that's translated as hardships. It's the same idea. Even to the point of chains. 
If Paul had committed his life to Christ for safekeeping, which he mentions in verse 12, I believe it was, how is someone going to take it from him just by locking him up, just by binding him with chains? That's not possible. It's not going to stop the mission that Paul has set out to accomplish. But the word of God is not chained. Though his body is in prison, his pen and his tongue is not. And he understood this well. We know that he spent a lot of time writing letters to churches, to those in the church, to those looking over the churches. So his pen and his tongue was not chained. He's able to write to these churches and to exhort them and encourage them in good practices. And I do think it's ironic that in writing the word of God is not chained, from prison, Paul was actually writing the word of God. It's ironic. He's sitting here in prison, in a dungeon. It was not a clean place. A little musty, human feces everywhere. Not a good place to be. But he writes from this place, the word of God is not chained. Himself contributing to the word of God. And of course, he could mean also the gospel in general is not chained. The word of God, that is the gospel. Uh, There is an intrinsic power in the gospel to change lives. And we've seen it happen again and again. Um, I've seen people's lives changed. I've seen my own life changed. Um, And certainly for the better. Uh, There is a power in the word of God. He says, Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Therefore, I endure and it's not merely I passively suffer. Okay, This is what we, we touched on a second ago. But this is I actively and perseveringly endure. It's something that he has to bear up under. He has to exert an effort to persevere in these things. There's a difference between passively suffering and actively bearing up under something. Okay, when I think of passive suffering, I think of the night that I went deer hunting in Oklahoma and I had to sleep in the truck. We all know that deer season gets chilly. That was passive suffering. I could do nothing about it. I was curled up with my beanie, full hunting gear on in the passenger seat of my dad's truck. And there's little blinking red lights on this tower out on the horizon. Every time I see one of those towers, I cringe. It's just seared into my mind. But that was passive suffering. I I wasn't really doing anything. I was just cold. It was terrible. We know the the blackouts of last winter. I'm sure many of you passively suffered. You just sat there freezing your rear ends off. Okay? But there's a difference between that and actively enduring something, bearing up under something. Okay, and that is the idea that we're getting from Paul here. Therefore, I endured actively all things 
for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, he, he says, for the sake of the elect. Now, broadly, this is the church, okay? Um, and that includes everyone who is saved, but also that will be saved, though they are not saved yet. It includes the whole church. That they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, that is the end of all these sufferings. That eternal glory with Christ Jesus. And that is what we live for. Verse 11, he goes on to say, this is a faithful saying. Now in this little passage here, verses 11 through 13, you're going to see four ifs. Okay. And we'll go through those one by one. This is a faithful saying for if we died with him, we also shall live with him. If we died with him. This is in the past tense. We know that Paul was ready to die physically from the last chapter that he writes in this epistle. Okay, he's, he's ready to move on. But he had actually already died with Christ way before he writes this. When he gave his life to Christ, he died with Christ. If he dies now, What's the worst that can happen to him? If all the suffering that he's bearing up under in this Roman prison actually kills him, what happens? Well, he goes to be with his creator in glory, this eternal glory that he's talking about. Now, that doesn't sound too bad. I'm anxious to get there. So if we died with him, which we know Paul did, and by saying, we shall also live with him, we get the idea that Paul is saying that Timothy died with Christ as well. We shall also live with him. The second if, if we endure, we also shall reign with him. If we endure. Uh, some Bibles might translate it as suffer. I tend to lean towards endure better because it does give you more of that active sense. And this verb in the Greek is active. Okay, and it's the same one we've been talking about. If we endure, if we bear up under these things, this is a perseverance with these things. We also shall reign with him. That's a big promise. Third, if, if we deny him, he also will deny us. I mean, that seems fair, right? If, if I deny him, he's going to deny me. Uh, nobody argues with that. In fact, uh, Paul takes this straight from the mouth of Jesus. In Matthew ten thirty three, Jesus is recorded as saying, but whoever denies me before men, him will I also deny before my father who is in heaven. Straight from the mouth of Jesus. Uh, Paul is just recounting what he's learned from others. The fourth if. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Do you believe that two plus two equals four? I do. I have no reason not to. But even if I didn't believe that, 
would it change the fact that 2 plus 2 equals 4? It would not. Uh, that is a simple fact, and my belief in it does not change that fact. In the same way, if we don't believe the gospel of Christ, that doesn't change the fact of the gospel of Christ. He cannot deny himself, and he certainly does remain faithful. Just because you don't believe something doesn't make it untrue. Now, we've read a great exhortation from Paul, um, as we have the last several weeks. And Jesus said that the word of God is like a seed. And when the, the sower sows the seed, he just scatters it. And it lands on different types of soil, and that is different conditions of the heart that the seed is planted in. And it's not the sower's job to provide the increase of the seed, but the seed, and scientists still don't know how a seed knows to, to sprout. It's actually a mystery. Something so small knows when to sprout when it's planted. But there's something about the contact with the soil the feeling of moisture on that seed that provides its increase. Well, we don't know how God provides the increase, but we know that he does. And there's something about that heart that it falls on that just soaks it up. There's something about that seed that knows when to sprout. I'm just scattering the seed. Okay, that's... That is my job. I I don't provide the increase. But I do pray that people's hearts would be ready to receive that seed, that it would be good soil that it falls on. And that is something that you can take care of. You can ask God to soften your own heart, to let that seed have its increase, to let it grow and flourish in your life. The seed, of course, being God's word. So when it's scattered um, and it falls on good soil, it sprouts into something amazing. It sprouts into life, just like an actual seed. It gives us life. So if you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, there's not a better time than now to make that decision. And it's a life-altering decision, and you'll have hardships. And I won't sugarcoat that for you. Uh, it's tough following Christ, and it is set to get tougher. But there is no other way by which you can be saved. Um, it is only by the name of Christ that we can make it to the Father, um, to our Creator, how it's supposed to be, really. So if you have any questions about what that would look like, um, asking Jesus to be your Savior, I'll be around after service. Uh, I encourage you to come ask me or ask one of our other elders that are here. Uh, we'd be happy to visit with you about what that would look like. Uh, just be receptive to what's been put on your heart this morning. Um, if you're already saved, maybe it's the next step. Just be receptive to that, and I pray that these things would fall on good soil. So as we close this morning, let's do so in a word of prayer.